Charlie Peck. I'm here with Matt Dubois. And oh my goodness, you all are in for a treat. I am so glad you're here, Matt. Welcome. Thank you. Um, thank you for the introduction. So my name is uh, Matt Dubois, and I am uh, trained as a clinical and school psychologist. Um, I currently um, work um, in a school system outside of uh, Boston, Massachusetts, and I uh, coordinate and lead the mental health services uh, for the district. And then I'm also uh, president of the Massachusetts School Psychologists Association. Yeah, so just a small role, you know, a little bit of a role you have in our school system there. <laughs> My goodness. And that's exactly why you're here. We're trying to get your insight and your input into what the gaps are in the mental health school system. But first of all, what do you see as the biggest barrier in school mental health right now? What a beautiful, important, big uh, question. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, just sort of uh, stepping back for a second, what's really sort of, I've been thinking a lot about this moment in time, right? We're about three years now into the pandemic. And what's fascinating for me, so on, on March 12th, 2020, I sat on a panel. And uh, in this panel, we were talking about the mental health crisis we were currently in for children and adolescents. And then the next day, everything changed for, for everyone, right? And so what we what we know is that the mental health crisis that we're in right now, right, it didn't it didn't initiate with the pandemic, uh, but it certainly has exacerbated it. It's absolutely made way more kids, way more adults too, uh, experience unpleasant emotions, experience mental uh, health symptoms. So I think that's a thing within schools right now, where you know if you were an educator and maybe like two or three kids in your classroom were struggling that feels like something, okay, you know, I'm going to sort of trust my counseling clinical staff to sort of, you know, take care of those children. When you're in a place where it's like eight, nine, 10, more than half your class that's struggling, that feels big. That feels really, really, really hard. Um, and so it's sort of now this sort of collective place where we all need to be thinking about how it is that we're supporting the mental health and wellness of every single child that we're working with. Wow. I mean, that, it really is big. I, I get it. And I was in the classroom, actually, I was in, I taught high school for 18 years. And so I noticed kids were struggling so much, but you're right. It wasn't, I mean, I was there with, with COVID too, that whole transition. And I stepped out of the classroom afterwards, but wow, kids were struggling. And then what I found is we didn't really know what to do as educators. And so we did lean on school counselors, school social workers, right? But the caseloads are just astronomical. So can you speak to the caseloads and what we need to do differently moving forwards? Yeah, you know, um, using a little bit of uh, education speak. Sometimes we'll talk about tiers, right? Tier one, tier two, tier tier three, right? Um, tiers level supports. I think based on the number of, of kids who need additional support right now, we're probably not going to tier two and tier three our way out of this, right? So really thinking about those everyday experiences that kids have within the classroom is going to be so incredibly important. Um, and what we know is that the classrooms are this beautiful, sort of perfect place for kids to be learning social and emotional skills. Um, oftentimes when I'm, um, talking with teachers, I have this sort of this fear, this worry of, you know, I'm not, I'm not a social worker. I'm not a psychologist. I don't know if I can support the mental health of, of my kids and teachers are so well positioned to do this work. And so we're never talking about obviously doing counseling or, or therapy, right. But their capacity to build belonging, their capacity to build relationships, their capacity to validate their capacity to cue kids to use different skills, they that is so well within their repertoire. 
And what we know um, from people who do, you know, clinical work, we always have this generalizability challenge, right? It's pretty normal for a kiddo to be in our office and they can tell you all the coping skills that they're going to use, right? You can even sort of role play and they're going to be able to use it. And then when they move into that moment when they need to use a skill, that's much harder, right? And so um, we're not with kids every moment throughout the day, but teachers a lot, are a lot of the time, right? And so teachers have this beautiful positionality when they can cue kids and support kids and problem solve with kids in the moment. And we know that has such a uh, pervasive and, and huge impact on, on kids' development, right? And the research has been really, really clear that when, when teachers, when educators are targeting social emotional learning in the classroom, that is the best place, that is the most powerful place, at least a really long-term positive outcomes for kids. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I remember some of the frustration I had when I wasn't, um, when I wasn't trained to be a clinical therapist is that I really wanted to support kids, but I didn't know really how to do that. And then also I was so afraid to say or do something wrong because I didn't feel like I was trusted to do that. So right. what is the best way to address that? Because I know teachers do want to be better equipped. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there are um, what is, um, you know, a, a positive outcome of the last three years is there have been way more resources and intentionality in this space. So there are things like youth mental health first aid, and that's something that's available to, to educators to, to be uh, in this space. Um, and then also just sort of name here, when we think about, um, you know, doing therapy with kids, we know that relationship, uh, that, that safety that we build with kids in the therapy room. That accounts for the wide, so much of the variance in, in intervention outcomes, right? And so what kids need to know, right, as this protective factor is that somebody has my back. Somebody cares about me, right? And that is something that teachers do beautifully, right? And so obviously we're never going to, you know, um, get it right every single time, right? But if you're um, trying to build a really positive, healthy, supportive relationship with a child, most times you're going to be doing enough for the child. And then obviously, you know, you can work with mental health professionals to think about how to navigate those more acute uh, situations. Um, but I, I really do feel strongly that teachers really have the skill set to do this type of work. I think part of what we can do as mental health professionals is maybe sort of disambiguate it a little bit better and really get hyper-specific about what we're talking about when, we're, when, we're, when we say things like we want to support the mental health of students in the classroom, being very specific about what that looks like day in and day out for folks. Yeah, that's a good idea because I think if they just don't know, they're not going to do it. And if it's not easy, they're not going to do it, right? Let's talk about those acute cases. So when I worked in the hospital setting with the acute care needs of kids, like teens that came in and they were high risk, our census went up when school was in session. When we went on breaks, our census went down, right? And so yeah. part of the problem I had with families and teens is that they there seem to be a disconnect with our community services and our schools. So not all, and I know this is a lot here. So not only were the census the census was higher, um, there was a transition issue back to the schools and then the families. There was just a disconnect. Can you speak to that issue? Yeah, and I think what you um, are sort of noting is, you know, when we're when we're um, working with kids, having really good uh, structures in place where all those systems are communicating with each other, right? So community-based agencies, the family, and the school all working in lockstep, that always results in the best outcomes for 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 kids. When each of those places, the family, the home, um, the community, schools, when those are silos, that never results in better outcomes for, for, for kids. 
And so I know work that, you know, we're, we're doing in our schools is trying to um, really have ongoing, really collaborative uh, communication with families so they know exactly what skills kids are working on. They know exactly what their supports look like. And then us also sort of linking with community-based agencies um, so they have a really good understanding um, of what kids are working on. But then also for schools and for families to have a really good understanding of how do I access supports within the community, right? Um, well, you said, you know, really rings true for me that it's not uncommon for kids through things that happen at school to then present to an emergency department or to then sort of get a recommendation for uh, a community-based uh, support. And when kids are not in school, sometimes families, it's, it is confusing. Navigating a healthcare system, deeply, deeply confusing. Knowing what resources are available, deeply confusing, right? And so the more, you know, psychoeducation that we can do for families where they have a really good understanding of what is available to them and how to access it is, is, is really important. Um, I know in Massachusetts, um, that, that, that's where, where I work in practice, that's a really uh, significant focus of really uh, making uh, families understand the resources that are available. Um, and then really making accessing those supports really, really easy. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge undertaking too, to have that kind of wide reach. How how are you addressing that? For with, with, with families? With families. And then, I mean, there are, there are two kinds of sides, actually three, right? There's there's families, parents, yep. caregivers, there's yep. educators, people in the buildings with the kids, and then the kids themselves. So I know, yep. I know for you, that is a huge undertaking, Matt. How are you handling that? Yeah, so you know, um, you know, I feel um, I, I'm I'm deeply fortunate that I'm, I'm in a position where I get to be in front of those groups a lot, um, and so I definitely feel a deep responsibility when I'm in those spaces to do a little bit of uh, teaching and training uh, for for folks. And um, what I always um, I, I I do some training of. Um, uh, soon-to-be psychologists. We talk a lot about that. It's never enough to just know a lot of things. It's really important that the people that you're working with know all those things and can use that as as well. And so for me, you know, whenever I'm in a position to talk with uh, guardians and caregivers and teachers and kids, that, that tends to be the best part of my job is when I get to be in front of kids, is really giving that really consistent message about mental health broadly, and then more specifically, when you sort of know that there might be a challenge and what it looks like to access support and very clearly like having numbers and addresses of places to go when things are, are they're challenging. And so that is a lot of heavy work up front. But then when you sort of are in this place in a while, people tend to have a better understanding um, of what's available. And I would say again, in the last couple of years, there are increasingly sort of more supports that are um, available. And so one thing I try to do is sort of curate those um, uh, supports that are available, and then sort of present them to our stakeholders with um, this additional piece of here's exactly when you would access the support. And here's what it would look like once you do that. That's good. Yeah, when anytime we have clarity, I guess that's the best way to go, right. And so yeah. Let's think of administrators who might be listening right now who have kids coming back from those situations who are, they really need that protective factor in place and school needs to be that protective factor, right? Um, There's confidentiality issues. And I, listeners um, might know the story that I tell about when I was a newer teacher, I had a student in my my class. There's a story around this, but I'll I'll get to the point of it. She uh, passed away after I taught her. And it was actually so devastating, of course, but more devastating that I didn't know 
I had no clue that this girl was sitting in my classroom, um, essentially dying in front of me. And because I didn't know there were some behaviors that showed up, and this was very pivotal for me as a teacher, there were behaviors showing up that had I known, I could have addressed it much differently and giving her, given her a much better experience, let alone the guilt and shame and pain that I've carried from that, right? So how do we communicate with teachers when that kid's coming back to the school? What should administrators do about this? And, and yeah. of course, it's not just administrators, the whole mental health yeah. team. Yeah, and you know, uh, you know, unfortunately, we know we have some evidence that more and more kids are presenting to the emergency department with with concerns regarding safety. Um, as you talked about, there are a lot of kids that are that are being hospitalized, right? So, from a from a big standpoint, having a structure in place, assuming that you're going to have kids every single year returning from a hospitalization or returning from some sort of treatment, is going to be really important, right? So that means that you know you have resources space, time allocated to help kids uh, navigate the transition back to school. Really, really important. What we also know is that those first couple of days, those first couple of weeks after you access treatment, really, really, really important for your care, right? Um, when we successfully navigate those first two weeks, we'll, we'll call it, that tends to have really positive uh, long-term outcomes for kids. When those first couple of days out, out of treatment feel really stressful, feel really hard, that's where we see a lot of recidivism of kids sort of moving right back to the hospital and our outcomes aren't, aren't as better. And so um, uh, in this space, uh, making sure that a, one, there's at least a, a person in your building who's sort of a, a point person who can be talking with um, that outside agency who's providing the care, whether it's a hospital or a partial hospitalization program, making sure that you're sort of getting some updates during the course of treatment. And then before a child sort of leaves that support that you're you're sort of or you're already having conversations about what that return to school is going to look like. Um, and in those conversations, you're sort of talking with a student about what do you feel comfortable sharing and for whom do you feel comfortable sharing that with. Um, it's not uncommon that kids are going to be asked questions from folks, where have you been? And then you're sort of having that that conversation upfront about how we're gonna how we're gonna answer it. And then you're being super thoughtful and intentional again about what those early days look like, right? It's really a common for kids to not yet have the academic stamina to do a full school day. So you might be thinking about what does a partial day look like? Are there certain classes that you want to be able to access? And then sort of over time, as you see how kids um, are tolerating that, you sort of increase the, the length of their school day and the types of classes that they're um, accessing. But sort of the big here is just making sure you have a structure in place where you're ongoing having these conversations with kids and with their guardians. So those early days, those first couple of weeks feel deeply uh, supportive uh, for them. Um, and usually there will be um, some additional, if they haven't already been accessing school-based clinical services, usually at that point, we are thinking about having an adjustment counselor or a social worker or psychologist uh, meet with that student and really prioritizing if it's already there, that psychological safety, so that if we continue to see mental health symptoms, including some concerns regarding safety. There's a space where a child feels comfortable to, to talk about those um, and to navigate them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a big deal too when that kid is going back to an environment. First of all, some of those environments are kind of toxic for them, causing that stress, as you know. Yeah. And so I'm wondering if they have five teachers in a day. Yeah. What's the conversation like with each of those teachers? And I, I again, I know you have to be so cautious about confidentiality. So is there yeah. a blanket kind of statement or process that you can use? Because a lot of teachers are telling us they don't they don't actually know what's going on. And that's 
they're sure. not sure what to do, right? Yeah, yeah. Any advice for that? Situation? Yeah, and, you know, like the um, with my psychologist hat on, right? So the the, the ethical principle is always sort of sharing information on need to know basis, right? right? And some of that will be conversations with kids um, and with their guardians. There's a version of it where where folks like you can tell whoever you want about what's going on so that everybody has the same information to help support. That's not always the case. Like you're talking about, sometimes there are cases where they want to be private for very acceptable, very legitimate reasons. Sure. Um, the the blanket thing that we've oftentimes said is that whenever a child misses school for longer periods of school, that transition back can be challenging. And so for us as adults, it's really really important that we're being flexible. That's sort of the, the key there, right? And that we are sort of creating these day-by-day -day plans to make sure that we're having success and then we're sort of adjusting it, right? Then with that too, there's sort of this boilerplate of, you know, assuming, right, that the academic stamina, the academic engagement is going to be fully there. What are some high priority assignments that you feel like the student can engage in so they have success early on? Yeah, you ever get the, sort of broad. Well, that, that is nice. It's true. Like that structure is great. And then having that now, what about those teachers or who are pretty rigid? And I know you've got them. I know you've got them. We're working with them. Oh, too. <laughs> um, uh, what's the approach? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And that's, that, and that's, that, and that's, that's hard. Um, and it can certainly be frustrating for everyone. Um, and, you know, understanding you know, teachers believe deeply in their content, right? Um, and there is importance in whatever the subject matter is. And I, we might not be able to convince the person, right? But I think in these moments, we have to be, we sort of have to frame that there are times when there are, there are assignments or a class that is not the most important thing in the world. Right. And so, you know, what is nice, you know, as administrators, you know, we can put structures in place to protect children, right, of saying, like, you're not going to be penalized if you don't hand in this assignment, you're not gonna be penalized if you don't do this test, right. So there's some structures that we can put in place, right. Um, but I think if we have, again, so like, there, there are these single moments where you might have to say, like, no, right now, we're not focusing on this test or this assignment or this class period, right. But I think we can also have these ongoing conversations about this idea of we have to meet the needs of kids at all times. And meeting the needs of kids is really challenging, right? It's going to be different kid by kid. That's the business that we're in, right? We're in the business of educating and supporting kids broadly, right? And sometimes your thing is going to be the most important thing. And sometimes it isn't. And so, again, you know, I wish that was always a perfect conversation that everybody always agreed with. But I think the more that we have these conversations, the more people will feel comfortable with them. Yeah, it is. It is really tough. I don't part of the training, like I thought I, I had a lot of perspective. I thought I was good at that as a teacher, but then until you really understand the why behind it, until you understand, I mean, I hate to overuse words like trauma and mindfulness and resiliency and all of that, but until you truly understand the underlying issues, we're not, we're, we're going to be more rigid, right? Um, and so part of that, okay, so let's get to this topic. It's like the threat assessments, because this links in there too. And I hear this a lot. So there's a couple of pieces here I want to talk with you about. Number one is there's an attitude that teachers have that kids are just trying to get out of stuff, right? Kids are just trying to get out of school. Kids are just trying to get out of having to get to school. So that's one issue. And we can break that down. And then the other issue is threat assessments that where we we have these assessments that send kids to the hospital and they're like, I don't know what I'm even doing here. And so sure. that's, I know those are two different discussions. So let's take the first one. Let, let's talk about sure. the, uh, the first 
topic there. Um, go ahead and listen to me to repeat it. I know there's a lot going on. Yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah. So you know, my you know my perspective and my stance on this is, uh, in general, people like to be good at things, right? Um, and if you ask more, and we have some some data to support this, if you ask kids like, do you want to do well in school? The vast majority of kids are going to say, yes, <laughs> I would like to do well in this thing that I'm made to go to every single day, five days a week for 10 months, right? So most kids are pretty interested in this idea of, of doing well. But then obviously things can happen in the course of development where they can come to not like school or they can come to believe that I'm not going to have success. So why would I bother to do all these things that adults are asking me to, to do, right? And so, you know, what I've encouraged people, you know, oftentimes we will talk about kids being unmotivated. And I feel like that's a big word because sometimes we'll sort of think about it as like this personality part of it, that this child's just not motivated. If they were just motivated, everything would be better. And so what I've sort of pushed folks to be thinking about is instead of a, a motivation deficit or issue, what if we thought about it as a confidence issue, right? And if you think about the very same behavior, as being the result of not feeling particularly confident about a thing versus it being a motivational, you're going to approach that in deeply different ways, right? And so I don't, I don't think that that sort of first mindset, oh, they're just trying to get out of things. Oh, they just don't want. To. I don't think that's a very helpful mindset. Even if it's true, it's not going to be a very helpful mindset for us to then put in supports that are going to help um, a child. So I think that we have to, as adults, sort of push ourselves past that and get deeply curious about what is going on. And in that curiosity space is where we might come to understand more deeply and more accurately why a student's not trying to come to school or why they're skipping class or why they're not doing their, their homework. I think it's yeah. always much more than, oh, I just don't wanna. Yeah, it, there is so much depth to it. But unless we're kind of trained or taught yeah. or told that yeah. condition to think about like that. Yeah, and one other thing I'd offer too is, um, so, you know, it's been a space where I get to, you know, talk with uh, teachers a lot about this idea of belonging, this idea about relationships. And, you know, what I, what I talk with folks a lot is that if you are a kiddo who's had pretty positive experiences at school and with adults generally and, and teachers specifically, the sort of the construct, the idea of school, teacher, adult is a pretty positive one, right? So you're a child that's very likely to walk into a classroom and be like, yep, I feel safe here that adult is probably somebody that I can go to when things are challenging, right? And so for us, building relationships with those kids, pretty easy. And it feels pretty great, right? It's like second week of class, awesome. We got these, this really good relationship going. If you are a child who has not had particularly positive experiences at school or with adults broadly, teachers specifically, that construct, that idea of school and teacher and, and adult might activate some deeply unpleasant feelings, including challenges related to, to safety, right? And so in general, as human beings, we tend to avoid things that feel unpleasant. This is sort of a thing that, that we do, right? And there's also this bidirectionality though of it is, you know, it's not uncommon for me to, to have teachers be like, I tried everything to build a relationship with this child and they just didn't give me anything back. Right. And what we know is that we like to preserve our safety. Right. We're really good at preserving our psychological and emotional safety. So kids will put up that wall and not give you anything back. But what I sort of offer to the teachers is, you know, the greatest asset that we got going for us is that kids, we have kids in our spaces every single day, five days a week, 10 months out of the year. Right. 
And so what we're really trying to be thinking about for those kiddos who are struggling is this idea of a corrective experience, right? We talk about this a lot in therapy, right? That you may have come to have these really challenging experiences, right? But we want you to have some different experiences that change the thoughts and the, and the feelings that you have about a thing, right? And so the way that our brain is designed is that if we are relentlessly pursuing kids in positive relationships, it's going to do a thing to their brain, right? Yeah. We just have to be way more stubborn than they are. Right. And so if we are relentless in that pursuit, we will absolutely get there, but it's not going to be two weeks. It might not be a month. It might be the entire school year. Right. But for that child who has that corrective experience, there are kids that are fundamentally changed. And uh, because of having had that experience, another entry point to school is very, very different. Which is huge because that could start really early and change the trajectory, right, of their whole life experience as a result. I love that. I love that. We have to be more stubborn than they are in that thinking. I love it. Um, so then the, the flip kind of flip side to that is then you've got somebody who's hypervigilant looking out for the kids and they say, listen, I got a kid who said this and I'm concerned. And so now there's a threat assessment. And, and the reason I'm bringing that up specifically is because I'm hearing that's that's some of the that's their go to process. And we're all about prevention um, and some other things. But so talk about the threat assessment that you all do and what's working and what the challenges are with that, if you don't mind. Yeah. And so, you know, when, when, whenever we have issues um, regarding safety, it's important to investigate those, right? That's the most important thing that we do is, is to keep uh, children uh, safe. Sometimes, you know, what I, what I'll, what's happened occasionally, what I hear about um, a lot. So one thing that's nice about being, so I'm the president of the Mass School Psych Association. So I sort of hear from school districts throughout uh, the state. And I think when we're in this space where kids are just struggling, I think people immediately jump to the most intensive intervention that we have, which is like going to the emergency department or accessing hospitalization or partial, right? And what we know is that the way that our healthcare system is designed is that those most intensive interventions are for very few kids, and they're meant for kids who are have imminent risk, right? Being really depressed, being really sad, feeling deeply anxious, right? Typically, that's not going to result in those highest level of of, of interventions for, for for kids, right? And so, you know, the 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 tough thing we're we're, we're dealing with. Um, mental health diagnoses uh, broadly, right? Uh, and sort of stepping back, what I like to frame for folks, when we think about um, positive mental health and what this sort of means, right? I sort of give this kind of simple, maybe sort of boring explanation that we generally want to have feelings that match the situation that you're in, both in, in terms of intensity and in duration, right? Going through a really challenging time, it probably makes sense you're going to have challenging feelings, right? When we start thinking about a mental health diagnosis, right? We're sort of thinking the intensity and the duration of your emotional experiences might not be quite matching what you got going on uh, within your environment, right? Mm -hmm. uh, for kids, I like to give this example, you know, you just worked out a ton and you wake up the next day really, really sore. Does that make sense? Yes. Would you say I need to go to the doctor? No, I wouldn't do that, right? But now let's say it's like two weeks later and you're still feeling really sore. What might you do? And kids are like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Or if you have no idea why you're sore and it's making it really hard for you to do the things that you want to do, yeah, they know how to access additional uh, support. When we're talking about mental health diagnoses too, is that there are going to be some periods that are going to be challenging, right? Um, there are going to be times that are going to feel really, really, really hard. What we know is that our outcomes are best for kids when we can keep them in, in, in deeply safe and supportive environments, Right. Accessing hospitalization, for example, does a really good job at stabilizing kids, right? But it's very short term, 
right? The active treatment to then build those skills, to build in those protective factors typically doesn't happen there, right? And so to the greatest extent possible, we want to keep kids in school when they are safe to, to be there, right? And so it really is sort of coaching um, staff up about what um, a true sort of concern around risk looks like. What we do when we close that door and we're talking with kids, what that generally looks like, and then sort of the options that are available after that, right? So their understanding of, so why is this child then returning to my classroom after that? Sort of right. talking them through about why that is, why that decision was made, and then trying to give them as much as you can, the skills and supports that they need to then support that, that student long-term. Yeah, I don't think they understand sometimes that having normalcy after an event like that is the best thing for the kid, right? Depending on what the kid is asking for and the need is, but yeah. And yeah. I think you're right. I think a lot of a lot of teachers don't just don't understand that part of yeah. it. So, and part of, and I know you're you hear all about teacher burnout these days. Um, yeah. yep. I'm curious about staff support and also equipping them with that knowledge base um, as a way to mitigate their burnout. Because what they're telling yeah. us is that they are holding on to so much of that. Okay, go ahead. I know you have a lot to say about that. Go ahead. I'd love to hear your yeah. response. Um, yeah, so I think, yeah, well, we, in there's been some actually recent um, studies that have sort of hung out in this space. So we know that teachers, the most common thing that the teachers will talk about um, is time, right? I, 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 there's just not enough time for me to simultaneously be trying to support kids' academic skill development and also their social emotional development, right? So that's the number one thing. And then, and then I think most teachers want to do well by kids. So anytime you feel like you're not doing something well, that's going to feel particularly stressful, right? Then absolutely, yeah, there, there are some schools that, you know, we, we need some additional um, uh, ways to support kid, uh, teachers more structurally to give them the technical skills to really help navigate uh, the, those moments. A couple of ways that, you know, um, I sort of go about it is that I think teachers will, um, the idea of time, I think, is, is, is this most valuable resource that we have in schools. And so one thing that I get to sort of offer to teachers is that when we think about like doing SEL in the classroom, right, we're really thinking about a set of behaviors that increase the likelihood of kids being um, psychologically and emotionally available for the instruction you're going to present, right? It'd be great if 24 kids entered your classroom and they were all ready to learn. That's not how it works. Right. That's just as right. And so when you do SEL in your first three minutes of, of your class, right, and you do a really thoughtful welcoming routine, now you're making the remaining 47 minutes of class way more available for all kids, right? So you've actually increased the number of minutes now in that class period that mm -hmm. kids are going to be available for instruction if you had not invested those three minutes at the, at the first point, right? And so part of what I do is just thinking about time in, in a slightly uh, um, different way. What we've also tried to do is really surfacing for teachers the things that they are already doing beautifully in this space that we call SEL, right? And I think it can be that can be really powerful conversations for teachers being, oh, that's interesting. I already am doing that. Oh, okay, yeah, that's something maybe I do a little of, but I feel very comfortable doing more of that. And so becoming again like hyper specific about what it is when we mean when we're saying supporting mental health in the classroom, doing SEL, and then surfacing for teachers what they're always what they're already doing. Um, is important. And then, you know, from uh, an administrative perspective is making sure that there's ongoing professional development and coaching that's available for teachers to do this work. 
the best part to my job is when teachers invite me to their classrooms and I'll do an observation and then I'll sort of look for things and I'll give them feedback and we'll try those new strategies um, and sort of use that coaching model. We have to have those structures because this is, isn't going to go away, right? Next year, right? We're talking again. We're not going to be like, oh, wow, we solved everything. It's fixed, right? This is going to be a long-term thing. And so we have to be acting accordingly in building in these structures of just like we're teaching teachers to teach literacy, to teach math, right? We're also preparing them to help support kids' social and emotional development. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of evidence. We know how important it is. We know when they're doing well, they're, they'll be doing better in school. You know, yes. those academic outcomes will come. Yep. You know that. There's evidence there too. Um, and I know that we we need to wrap this up for your time's sake because I appreciate so much that you're here. Is there anything else you would like to leave us with as far as anything that we've met, that we've missed that's that's like burning you to say out loud that we're missing? Because I want you to think of who can take this information back to their school or their district with them and do something immediately that might have an effect. Yeah. So yes, what I, what I'll sort of leave on is when we are in when we're talking about mental health, sometimes it can feel really overwhelming when we're just thinking about like depression and generalized anxiety disorder and PTSD. When we think about contributing to kids' wellness, increasing those protective factors are just as important, right? And so one thing that we spend a ton of time about is trying to ensure that kids have at least one safe adult at school. And what we actually do is we do universal screening and we ask kids, do you have a safe adult at school that you can go to when you're having a challenge? Then we ask kids to name who that adult is. And then for those kids who can't identify a safe adult, people feel very comfortable like, oh yeah, I'll talk to that child for a couple of extra minutes each day, right? People feel very comfortable in that space. And so I think as a kind of a low hanging fruit is sort of engaging in that work to figure out, do our kids have safe adults? Who are their safe adults? Can we leverage those safe adults to help kids when they're ha having a challenge? And then for those kids who are not having safe adults, can we think about some uh, tier one classroom-based interventions that are going to help support them? Mm -hmm. That tiered system seems to be working okay for our schools right now. Is it a, yeah. a good system? Well, yeah, it, it um, um, I would say that's a, a space that a lot of, again, I, I, when you think about um, MTSS broadly, right? We, you know, that's a thing that ed, more schools are trying to use. And it's, it's come from public policy of understanding what do you do when you have a lot of people that need a thing and resources are finite, right? And so we're in this place right now where a lot of kids need a lot of social emotional support and no school has unlimited resources, right? Yeah. And so really thinking about what can we do in the classroom to be prevention-based while also making sure that the kids who need higher levels of support from clinicians can access it as well. Awesome. Yeah. Teachers can be great informants, can't they? Absolutely. An essential piece. Yeah. And thank you for your time, seriously. And if there's anything that you need, let me know. Um, but for those of you listening, please let me know if you have questions directly for Matt, because he's a wealth of knowledge. Of course you are. So thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Okay. Great. Thank you so much.